What an incredible week we've had. Um, I remember reading, I think it was two or three weeks ago, in the newspaper, and uh, the chairman of the IBC, Chebukati, they were interviewing him and his wife. And the headline just said, Chebukati asks for prayers. And I kind of looked at the headline. You know, I, we were going through the political series, and one of the things I personally had said is we should pray as we read. So I thought, hey, let me just say a quick prayer for him. And boy, did he need those prayers. <laughs> um, I was watching the announcements of the elections, and it felt like I was watching an episode of 24. And Chebukati was Jack Bauer. You know, they said, we're announcing it at 3 p.m. I didn't get any work done that day. You know, I'm waiting for 3 p.m. 3 p.m. arrives. It's like, okay, we are, we are running. Not, they should have said around 3 p.m. You know, if you say around, we, we know what you're talking about. Right? If you say 3 p.m., and then suddenly we've got this other press conference at Serena, and we're like, man, what's, what's happening? You know, up to that point, uh, for those who don't know, I'm, I'm Zimbabwean, and some of the things on Twitter was Africans around were just saying, hey, man, you know, Kenya is really showing Africa how this thing should be done. And, and they got it like 99.99.9995%. And then we just had that reminder that we're still in Africa. And so we've got chairs being thrown, senators hitting people on live TV. Then Chewukati comes with the results. And I mean, the man... It was like his moment. He says, you guys, you, you don't know what I've, what I've had to fight through to announce these results. So we, we had it all. Um, and of course, there's been some pockets of, of violence, some, some tragedy as well. And so we remember even those who are mourning at this time. And also a bit of comedy. But all in all, we thank God, even as Timo said, for the peace that has prevailed. And we just want to continue to ask God to have his hand on this nation and everything that's happening uh, because um, God's got a plan and a purpose for Kenya. And we're all a witness of that. And so let's just pray on that note. Yeah, dear Lord, I remember just how Isaiah said in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Hi. And lifted up. And Lord, even as we are in times of transition, even as there's still question marks around Supreme Court's possible petitions, we want to lift our eyes to the Lord who is high and exalted. Lord, may we hear again that cry of the seraphim as they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so I invite you this morning that uh, 
it would be your voice that breaks in to the hearts of your people. Would you point us again to what you're doing? Because even then, Isaiah heard the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so, Lord, may we be reminded of our mission that you have called us to in this great city and in this great nation. We invite the work of your Holy Spirit. We say we are helpless and useless without you. And so would you come in great power, even as you've been with us throughout our time this morning. Amen. Amen. Great. I think it's safe to say that most Kenyans uh, want to move on from the elections. And so I invite you to open uh, your Bibles, if you have, to Acts chapter 16. And we're continuing to follow the story of how the message of Jesus spread from what you might consider this dusty, backward outpost in Palestine to be a message that is received and followed across the world. And so we've entitled our current series as, in this current portion of the book of Acts, History Maker, because over uh, the next few weeks, starting from today, we're seeing how this message of a crucified, you would say, nobody in Palestine. Crucifixion was a death that was only reserved for the worst outcasts. A Roman citizen wouldn't even be crucified. They would be beheaded uh, by the sword. In the headlines of the day, the story of Jesus wouldn't have made it to the front page. It wouldn't have made it to the back page. It wouldn't even have made it to the tabloids. But yet, the Bible is still the best-selling book. Yet this message would grow to conquer an empire. 380 AD, the emperor of the East, Theodosius, declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. It grew to such an extent that in the second millennium, one wouldn't consider themselves European without considering themselves a Christian. It affected the politics. I was just reading the other day of uh, Angela Merkel. She was the chancellor in Germany for about 16 years, I think. And she was in the Christian Democratic Union. And she came out and she said, yes, she was an evangelical Christian, that she believed in the gospel. How did this message come to affect politics? How did it come to affect economics? When you think of social welfare, that all came out of this Christian message. How did it come to affect the architecture of Europe? How, how did it come to affect the arts, science? You know, there's a, there's a false narrative that's, that goes about that actually science 
is, is anti-Christian or Christianity is anti-science. But the first universities were founded by Christians. And the highest study, what you would do for your PhD was theology. And I think something even to date, like 63% of Nobel Prize winners have been Christian. How, how did this message come to affect society to such a great extent? And so this morning, I want us to look at its genesis, how it got into Europe, how it became such a great force of good. And more importantly, I want us to gain faith that what God has done in the past, he can do it again in our great continent of Africa. He can do it again in this great nation of Kenya. He can do it again in this wonderful city of Nairobi. So what will it take for this message to have power in your own life? What will it take for, for this message to have power in your family, in your home, in your school, in your workplace, or even in your neighborhood? I won't leave us in suspense. I believe that it will take a renewed and growing faith in God's power. And more specifically, his power to change the human heart and life. And his power to defeat all opposition. Last week, Cody showed us how Paul and his team left their home church and were sent out from Syrian Antioch. And they were seeing, where, 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 where can we go? They tried to travel south. They tried to travel north. But it seemed that God didn't want them. And he pushed them further and further westward until they got to a place called Troas. And so this is where we're picking up. We'll read from Acts 16, verse 11. And it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And so you can see there should be a picture up of Paul and his team traveling from what we call modern-day Turkey and then arriving into Greece. This area is still in Greece. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and a household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. 
in this story, we see God's power to change the human heart. But as we kind of start the story, or as I looked at the story, what immediately struck me was the team's strategy and resources or apparent lack of strategy and resources. I mean, their strategy went something like this. Step one, show up. No gimmicks, no advertising, no PA system. I mean, can you imagine? I've heard that Sonko can pull it off to run an election like that, that he can just show up. But can you imagine trying to run for elected government, let alone trying to spread a world-changing message? Four guys from a despised tribe showing up in this Roman colony when, where people have the pride of Rome. They, not only are they Romans, but they're also living in a Greek city. There's no bright lights. There's no Timor strumming to kind of get people in the mood. It's just Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke who wrote. But most importantly, they trusted that God had sent them and God was with them. Step two, find people. Like, hey, how do we do it? Just, just, just find where people are. And so their normal strategy was to look for a gathering of Jews in a synagogue because these were people who'd be familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and this message about Jesus should have really led up to them. But we find in this city that it seems there wasn't a synagogue possibly because it, it, it took to have, you needed to have 10 Jewish men. You needed a quorum before you could start a synagogue. And so Luke says that they started speaking to some women. And in Greco-Roman world, women weren't looked at highly upon. Kind of like, oh, changing the world. Oh man, it's just some women. Sorry, you can't say that today. And later, a Roman writer called Celsus, who was a philosopher and was writing against Christianity, said, you know, these guys, all they've succeeded to do is, is to convince the ignorant, slaves, children, women. For him, this didn't seem like a world-changing message. Step three, tell them about Jesus. This was the heart of the message shared by Paul, as he later reminded some other Greeks in Corinth, that when, when, he, when he arrived, he shared what was of first importance, and it was this, drum roll, Jesus died, anticlimax. I mean, Paul's message was so ridiculous 
that when, when he spoke to the Athenians at the Areopagus, some people laughed. You know, this, this was where the world's ideas met. We'll see that story a little bit later. And there was another time when he was speaking in court before these Roman officials, and he was telling his testimony, and one of the officials burst out, Paul, your great learning has made you mad. Kind of thing, hey, everybody's heard about Jesus. But in that day, this was the kind of message that people might want to commit you to Matari. Like, this is madness. How can you talk about a crucified Savior? Yet that was the heart of Paul's message. In fact, he said he resolved to talk of nothing else except Christ and him crucified. But the good news was that Christ didn't stay dead, but he rose again in power on the third day. And he had poured out his spirit on all those who believed in him. And he would return one day to judge the living and the dead and receive his own people. And those who believed in this message would have new life, taking part in new creation. Step four, those who believe that message get baptized. But in this whole process, Luke is at pains to show us that it wasn't the power of Paul's oratory or, or how he spoke this message, but as he says in verse 14, that it was God who opened Lydia's heart so that she could pay attention, as the ESV says, to what Paul was saying. And that phrase, to pay attention, can mean to, to be alert for, to consider carefully, to, to continue to believe, and to continue to devote oneself to. And in this case, it's this message that was being preached by Paul. So what Luke is saying when he says she paid attention to what Paul was saying is that actually God opened her heart to become alert to what Paul was saying. She, she was awakened out of kind of a, a, a spiritual stupor, a, a, a kind of spiritual hangover, a dullness or a death. That she, she considered this message carefully. What others might listen to and think, this is madness, this is foolishness. What others might, might, might think, this is laughable. Or even herself, she, she was a business lady. I mean, how many, how many times you kind of sit in a church and you wonder, okay, what, what am I going to be eating for lunch, by the way? And Lydia could have had those, that moment where she kind of drifts off to think, hey, I wonder if that check is going to come in on Monday. Is that shipment, you know, I need to speak to KRA. That thing needs to be cleared at the border. But Luke says, no, no, no. God opened her heart, and she listened carefully. Not only did she listen carefully, it says that she believed, she, she laid hold of this message. She didn't postpone it. She didn't say, hey, you know, this, this sounds good, 
I'll, I'll come back to it next week. What she said was, is if this message is true, it changes everything and I must respond to it today. Not only did she respond to this message, we see her taking it to her household. We don't know whether her household was with her at the time. But Lydia thought, this is too big to keep to myself. This is too big to, to just make a personal message, a, 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 a personal life decision. This affects everyone. That if it was really true that Jesus died on her behalf, that he rose again, and that if she believed him, she would receive all these promises and new life. And I want to challenge you this morning. Have you really paid attention to this message? We see Lydia going on to act on it. She said, hey, I want to be baptized. You've got baptism on the 4th of September. I'm there. Sign me up. And then finally, we see Lydia opening up her home, sacrificially loving and generous. And so she continued in this message. Friends, in a nutshell, what we see happening in, in Lydia's life is what it means to be born again. You see, being born again is, is not simply agreeing with some statements you've, you've read in the Bible or heard in church or going through catechism or classes. It's not simply repeating a prayer. Come on, repeat this prayer after me. Being born again is not kind of discovering that you want to live a bit more religious. You want to be in touch with your religious side or to engage in some spirituality. It's not even deciding that you want to change your life. It is God himself working in your heart to convince you of the truth of the message of Jesus. It is God himself calling you from the dead. Just as Jesus said, the time has come when those who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will come alive. It is God himself transferring you from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, from, from, from under the power of Satan's rule to the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. And you cannot help respond and give your life to him. So how do we practically respond to what we see happening in the story with, with Lydia? Well, I believe that each of us needs to answer two heading questions. The first is, have you experienced God's power through the gospel. Have you, have you really experienced this power? 
How can you know? Well, is the message about Jesus something that is all important to your life? Or is it simply an add-on? You know, kind of like when you have a computer or a phone, you've got the main operating system, and then you've got some apps that you can download and delete. Is the message of Jesus the main operating system of your life? Or is it an app that you download from Google Play? I'm not in iOS. Secondly, are you building your life on the message of Jesus? Because Jesus said, the one who hears my words and does them, I tell you what he is like. He's like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came and the waves came, this house stood. But the one who hears my words and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the sand. And when the storms came and when the waves came, that house came crashing down. So are you building your life on the rock? And finally, what we see from Lydia, are you living with sacrificial love and generosity? See, in verse 15, Lydia says to the apostles, hey, she, she, she insisted, please come stay with me if you believe that I have truly responded to this message. In other words, she's saying, hey guys, if you really believe that, that God has changed my heart, that this, what you've been talking about, the promises of Jesus are true to give new life, if you really believe it, I want you to come to my house and live with me and see it for yourselves. And so what, what we see from that is when God changes your heart, there's some fruit, there, there's something that is visible, there's some blessings that flow to those who are around you. So if you're a single girl or, or a single guy and you're, and you're dating, it means your boyfriend or girlfriend should experience the, the fruit of self-control from your life. That you, you don't pressure them into sinful sexual relationship outside of marriage. And guys, none of this thing of going Dutch. Pay the bill when you go out for a date. No offense to any Dutch among us. Okay, that's a joke. But seriously, if you're single and a guy, I advise you, pay for the date. If you're married, your spouse should experience the fruit of your faithfulness, the fruit of, of your loving care and honor in that relationship. If you're a parent, your children should experience the fruit of patience, joy in the home, gentleness in correction. And if you're a child, your parents should experience the fruit of, of your kind consideration and your obedience. You see, whether Lydia doesn't say, hey, 
What I'll do is I'll show up for the meetings. You guys want to see that God has changed my life? I'll be there on a Sunday or on a Saturday. I will jump the highest. I will sing the loudest. But the rest of the time, I'm continuing with my life. She says, no, you will see it in my home. And so this fruit of a changed heart is seen in the home, in the family, in the school, in your workplace. And so I ask again, have you experienced God's power through the gospel? And if you know the honest answer to that question is no, the good news is that you can experience the power of the gospel today. You don't have to wait for tomorrow. Today, you can put your trust in Jesus and ask God to work in you and give you this new heart. Because you see, we're not the initiators of this relationship. It's God who comes and freely offers it as a gift. And he says, what you need to do is believe. And so today can be your day. The second question is, do you believe the power of the gospel is enough? You see, it's, it's possible to really and truly experience the power of the gospel and still feel like it's not the answer for everybody. Like, you know, it's, it, it worked for my life. It, it works for me. But, yeah, you know, different strokes for different folks. And here, you can think of your family. You, you can think of your neighbors, your classmates, your, your friends, your, your co-workers, or, or even just acquaintances. The people we just brush do you really believe that they deeply and really need the power of this gospel? And how can you tell if you believe that? Well, just look at Paul and his team. These guys were willing to move heaven and earth to go into places of danger. In fact, by the end of the story, we'll see them languishing in prison. Not only were they willing to endanger themselves and, and spare no effort, they also took every opportunity to share this message. In Paul's own words, in Romans 1 verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what Paul is saying is, yes, this message Sounds embarrassing. Yes, it's shameful. Yes, sometimes we're the guys who stick out like sore thumbs. Yes, sometimes we're those awkward guys in the office who, you know, pass out flyers and invite people to church events. We're those guys who, who get labeled in the family group. You know, when people start calling you pastor, and you know, this is, this is not a compliment. But Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so, do you believe the power of the gospel is enough? 
Do you believe it's, it's enough to transform hearts and lives? Do you believe it's enough to transform marriages, to transform parenting? Do you believe it's enough to bring peace where there is hopelessness and confusion? And do you believe it's enough to bring purpose where there is aimlessness? Do you believe it's enough to bring clarity where, where there seems to be a lack of clarity and darkness? Do you believe the power of the gospel is enough? Friends, if we are to grow in faith, if we are to see this message transform our lives and by extension transform the world we live in, we need to grow in faith for God's power to change the human heart. And for that to happen, we need to first experience the power of the gospel ourselves. And we need to trust that it can change the lives of anyone. But as we continue our story, not only do we see God's power to change hearts and lives, but now we're going to see God's power to defeat opposition. And this is my second and final point. Not only do we see God's power through the gospel to change hearts and lives, we also see God's power to defeat opposition. So I'm just going to continue reading the story, starting in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed or exasperated or troubled in his spirit, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrate, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrate tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering them, the jailer, to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, or what we might call the dungeon, and fastened their feet in the stocks, which stocks were also used as instruments of torture. Now, on initially reading that passage, we might be tempted to think, okay, so Paul and his team are facing opposition, it seems, from kind of a spiritual source, the occult. There's this girl who, 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 who does uh, fortune-telling. And then they're also facing opposition from, from these guys who've lost out. So they're facing spiritual and kind of human opposition. But as Paul would later write 
to the church of the Ephesians, our battle is not against people. As the Good News translations put the verse, for we are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this dark age. And so the ultimate source of the opposition that Paul and his team are facing comes from evil spiritual forces, whether they're working through the occult and through witchcraft or whether they're working through outright persecution by the governing officials. And this morning in the little time I have remaining, I want us to look at at how Paul deals with an evil spirit afflicting this young girl. Because I want us to grow in our faith that God indeed does defeat spiritual opposition in our own lives and through us. Now firstly, I need to mention two extremes that we need to avoid. And one extreme is where we become obsessed with these unseen evil spiritual forces. And it seems every source of problem, everything in our lives. I was late. I rebuke this, that spirit of lateness. <laughs> Have you tried using an alarm clock or reminders on your phone? Now, to help us, I just want to read from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And this is what he says. Not all evil and sin is from Satan and demons, but some is. If we think of the overall emphasis of the New Testament epistles, we realize that very little space is given to discussing demonic activity in the lives of believers or methods to resist and oppose such activity. The emphasis is on telling believers not to sin, but to live lives of righteousness. For example, in 1 Corinthians, when there is a problem of dissension, Paul does not tell the church to rebuke a spirit of dissensions, but simply urges them to agree and be united in the same mind and the same judgment. When there's a problem of incest, he does not tell the Corinthians to rebuke a spirit of incest, but tells them that they ought to be outraged and that they should exercise church discipline until the offender repents. When there's a problem of Christians going to court to sue other believers, Paul does not command them to cast out a spirit of litigation or selfishness or strife, but simply tells them to settle those cases within the church and to be willing to give up their own self-interest. When there's disorder at the Lord's Supper, he does not command them to cast out a spirit of disorder or gluttony or selfishness, but simply tells them that they should wait for one another and that each person should examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. These examples could be duplicated many times in the other New Testament epistles. And so, there is this one extreme. But on the other hand, there is this other extreme where we live, think, pray, approach life as though there were no evil spiritual forces arrayed against us. This goes far against the teachings of the New Testament. 
Jesus himself taught us to pray, keep us from the evil one. James says, resist the devil. 1 Peter 5 says, we have an enemy roaming around like a roaring lion whom we should resist. Ephesians 6, 13 tells us that we must put on the armor of God so we can withstand the devil's schemes. Other texts say that we must not give the devil a foothold, that we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. And, and if I'm, to be honest, as I look around the room and, and I think of who makes up one tribe, we are more in danger of falling in this extreme where we are unaware of the devil's schemes. And what I love about Paul in this situation is that he's not obsessed with evil, evil spiritual force. He hasn't gone out to say, hey, guys, let, let, let's go and, and see where we can find a demon today. In fact, it says that this girl was following them for days. And Paul was on his way to their usual place of prayer. Paul's goal was to proclaim the gospel. And so Paul is, is not obsessed. But on the other hand, he's not unaware. Paul recognizes that, hey, this, the situation with this girl you know, it's not just superstition. Hey, you, you know how superstitious these Greeks are, these people in Philippi are? Hey, hey no, it's, it's, just, it's just a trick. They, they play tricks on people. Paul discerned that there was a demonic spirit that was working in this girl's life. And at first reading, it, you're like, hey, Paul, what's wrong? She's saying... These people serve the most high God and they're showing you the way of salvation. What's wrong with that? That kind of sounds almost like what you're saying. See, and, and often Satan comes dressed, Scripture tells us, appearing as an angel of light. You know, in Islam they say that the angel Gabriel appeared to Muhammad, and over 10 years gave him the words of the Quran. The Mormons talk about an angel appearing to Smith and giving him these words. And when I, when I first became a Christian, I had, I had one of those Bibles with writings of Mormons. And even as a young Christian, I could tell, man, this stuff is crazy. And so what this girl is saying, you know, it might appear right, but it's very ambiguous because Zeus was called the most high God and anyone could proclaim the way of salvation. Even Caesar himself said he, he gave the way of salvation. And so Paul doesn't want his message, he doesn't want the church to be associated with the occult and with witchcraft and he's troubled in his spirit and turns and rebukes the Spirit. And so friends, we need to avoid being obsessed. But on the other hand, we must not be unaware of the devil's schemes. So as I close, I just want to highlight 
a few principles that we see in this story for dealing with these kind of encounters where we meet people or might be in situations where we feel that we're dealing with an evil spirit. And by far, the number one most important is to realize that all believers have Christ's authority to stand against evil spirits. Listen to what Mark 16, 15 to 17 says. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. It doesn't say these signs will follow pastors, bishops, reverends, apostles, prophets, evangelists, those who've been to Bible school, those who've been to the school of supernatural ministry. It says these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. And Paul when he, when he confronts the Spirit, he says, in the name of Jesus. Now, understand that this is not a formula. Later on in the story of Acts, we see some guys trying to use this formula, and it doesn't go well with them. What Paul is saying is that he is standing deputized in the authority of Jesus. And in fact, this is not a formula that we use in these situations or in prayer. In Colossians 3, 7, Paul says, Whatever we do, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. And so this is an extension of Paul's life. If he had breakfast in that morning, he had it in the name of Jesus. If he was walking, he was walking in the name of Jesus. When the demon is there, he is in the name of Jesus, come out. And not only do we see apostles casting out demons, in Acts 8, we see Philip casting out many demons. In Luke chapter 10, the first volume of Luke's writings, Jesus sent out these 70 and they came back celebrating and said, even the demons came under authority in your name. And you have to realize that this was unprecedented. In the whole Old Testament, you do not have a single case of a demon being cast out. In the and so when these 70 guys went out, and you can imagine how they first kind of tried it. You know, they would be holding each other. Like, okay, you go. It's like, no, no, no. You know, let's, okay, let's do uh, rock, paper, scissors. Uh, okay, it's you. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll stand behind you. I'll be praying for you, brother. Okay, in the name of Jesus, come up. Wow. They become more confident as they go along. Because the authority didn't lie in them, but lies in Jesus. I remember a story told by one of my friends, and he was saying this guy was casting out a demon, and, you know, the demon said to him, Haha, you haven't been fasting. And the guy said, 
Well, in the name of Jesus who fasted 40 days and nights, come out. And as the story goes, the person was delivered. But all this is to say the authority does not lie in what we bring to the table. It lies in Jesus. Some practical pointers. Pray for people in team. At the end of that story, we see it was Paul and Silas who were arrested. Paul wasn't kind of a lone ranger doing his own thing. Paul walked in team. Secondly, don't, don't be in a rush to call a particular problem a demon. Paul, Paul took his time for several days. This girl was, was following them. And Paul discerned that this was the root of what was happening in her life. And so we need to ask God for the gift mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, the gift of discerning of spirits. Thirdly, command the spirit to go with authority. You see, it's, it's, it's not a time for, for interviews. They, I know there are whole channels where it seems like the, what they're doing is just interviewing people. Say, hey, okay, who are you? Where, where have you come from? What are you doing to this person? And it's, it's, we find Paul is not interested in the travel history of this demon. What have you been doing? He just says, come out. And of course, there might be some situations where there's some dialogue, but that is, that is not the point. Speak with authority. And this authority does not come with the raising of your voice. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that demons are hard of hearing. This authority comes from Christ. In our country, we have policemen. Not, you know, the policemen in Zim are not as big as the policemen in Kenya. They are fairly small. And it's very, very unusual to see a policeman carrying a gun or even a, a, a baton stick. Normally what he has is just a pair of handcuffs. And these policemen are so bold, right? If, if for whatever reason he suspects you've broken the traffic law, he jumps into the middle of the road and stops you. I don't know if he if was trying to stop Kenyans, what would be the result? But as soon as Marwin see that it's a policeman, we stop. He doesn't have, they don't have cars by the side of the road. No gun, you know, and that kind of looking, is there some sharpshooter somewhere? What gives this guy such courage is the uniform he's wearing. He knows the state is behind him. And this is the courage that we have in standing against spiritual opposition. It's the authority of Christ that is behind us. And so as, as I close, I just want to remind us that the gospel is powerful to change lives 
and hearts. And through faith in the gospel, through being joined to Christ, we have power to defeat all satanic opposition. I'm just going to invite the band to come up. I know we've kind of gone a little bit over time, so we'll just sing a song. And what this song is saying is that there is power in the name of Jesus. It doesn't have too much in it, simply that there is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. Why don't we just stand together? And as we sing that song, I just want to invite you to respond. This morning I've, I've spoken about experiencing the power of the gospel that changes hearts. And I asked, have you encountered this gospel? And if you know in your hearts of hearts that you, you can't be confident, you can't truly really say that you've experienced it, well, this morning, today is your day of salvation. Jesus' power is available for you this morning. The good news is there's, there's never a blackout in the courts of heaven. There's no time when his power is unavailable because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And this morning, you can encounter his power. What more could you desire for your life? What are you putting your hope and your trust in? As the psalmist says, put your hope in the Lord. Not only do I want to invite us to encounter the power of the gospel, I want to invite us to regain our faith in the power of the gospel. That Jesus can change anyone's heart. Not only that, I want us to encounter his power against all opposition. And so as, as we sing, if you'd like prayer under any of those headings, it doesn't matter what. Why don't you just come forward? There will be leaders here to pray with you and would love to just pray for you. But let me just pray and then we sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story, an incredible story of how you opened the heart of this one lady and delivered this young girl from the power of an evil spirit. Thank you that it's, the power wasn't in Paul, but the power was in your spirit and in your gospel. And today, the power is still available for us in your gospel and through the presence of your spirit. Dear Lord, I, I pray that we would not be a people who cower away from facing spiritual opposition, from facing demonic oppression, from facing demonic attack, whether in ourselves or in others. But as Paul said, we would put on this full armor of God that we might stand against all the wiles of the devil. And even this morning, Lord, I want to take authority in the name of Jesus 
over any form of spiritual oppression. For anyone who is listening to me or or watching online, I command release. I command breaking of bondage. I command clearing of minds. I take authority and restrain lies, deception. I break the power of temptation. I break the power of sin. I break the power of strongholds. Even now, Lord, where some people have been blinded from receiving the gospel, I command an opening of eyes. Where there's been confusion on the message of Jesus, I command a clearing and a clear understanding of the gospel. Father, I I command where there is sickness that is caused by spiritual oppression, that right now it would be broken. Any form of sickness or illness that comes through spiritual oppression, be gone. Any spirit of oppression in the mind, be gone. Any spirit of addiction, be gone. Dear Lord, the scriptures say that the people who know their God will be strong and do mighty exploits. May that be the testimony of this church, that mighty exploits would be done in the power of the gospel and against all spiritual opposition. Amen.